Hello, welcome to a new episode of Lost to Time. You're joined by myself, Joshua Mallard, and co-host Han Hitchin. Howdy, folks. It's been a while. It's <laughs> The year is flying by. We're almost into 2023. Oh, yeah. We just passed Halloween and the winter holidays are coming up. So whether you're listening to this during or after the holidays, we hope you enjoy them. Yeah, maybe it's time to grab a mug of hot cocoa or something. And we're in we're in a pumpkin spice weather right now still. But by the time <laughs> this month is over, I think it's going to be quite a bit colder where we are. I'd like to argue that it's peppermint mocha weather, Joshua. Hey, that that fits for both seasons, yeah. autumn and winter. You're right. But we're back with the new episode. Um, and this time we're not in Orlando like the, what, two episodes ago when we were in Disney? Yeah, no, we, we've been staying put, thankfully. <laughs> yes. Um, so today we have an interesting episode. But first, I just want to tell you about some of the things coming up. Of course, the big thing in the near future, <laughs> I bet we'll blink and we'll get there, is Campground 23, which is in March, March 16th to 18th. So we're coming back to Tampa Bay, and it's the second time around for this festival. Yeah, Campground 22 was a great success, and we have no doubt that Campground 23 will be just as exciting, so y'all don't want to miss it. Yeah, lots of good people, good food, and thankfully good weather during our time in Florida. Yes, we hope that that all, especially the weather part, stays the same. Yeah, <laughs> though I guess um, a lot of people coming over to Tampa during that time will be coming out of a pretty cold winter. Oh, yeah. So almost anywhere you're coming from, Tampa will probably be a vast improvement. Very true. Before we dive into the topic of today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to um, some of the other podcasts. You can check those out at the Contemporary Art Music Project's website. Um, it's just .org at the end. Or if you're listening to this on YouTube, um, you'll see all the new podcast episodes, performance highlights, and things that have been coming out. So showing a bit of what you missed last year if you weren't there. Or um, if you're interested in going, you can see what it was like. Yes, no matter what platform you're listening to us on, just like and subscribe that camp channel page, whatever it is. Yeah, and click the bell. <laughs> yeah, get the noties on, y'all. But also um, on October 7th, Project Goot had... Um, a really good showing um, at the USF concert hall. So you can actually, I think, still view that online. So um, go ahead and check that out. Anyways, Han, how about you tell the viewers or the listeners uh, the topic of today's episode? Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing all those camp events. And today we're actually doing something a little bit different. As on brand with Lost to Time, we are going to be talking about a composer whose work has not really been recognized since their death. But unlike our previous episodes, instead of talking about a composer who passed in the 20th, 21st century, we're actually going to be talking about a late Renaissance composer today. Today, we're going to be talking about Vicente Lusitano. Yes, and this is an interesting one, not only because um, we're talking about a Renaissance composer, but also a composer of color, mixed race. Uh, we'll get into all that. And uh, if you're into old music. <laughs> this is a very interesting one because not only is the music old, but it sounds like it's very fresh still. Oh yeah, we are definitely ones who it's fun to find early music that can um be a reflection on what's to come soon. It's always an exciting um what's the word? 
listening Revelation. experience. Both of those things. <laughs> yeah, maybe both. Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about his bio a little bit. So Vicente Lusitano was a Portuguese composer and music theorist. So he was both of those things pretty equally, but he was also a Catholic priest. Um, and just a disclaimer, most of what we know about his life, most of the information um, comes from the 18th century biographer Barbosa Machado. And his biography actually references a manuscript from João Franco Barreto. And unfortunately, most of this information has not been verified from additional sources, um, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, but I mean, this is, you know, part of the fun and the mystery a bit. Um, you know, a lot of these composers who are underrepresented are um, not as well documented historically either. And in the case of older composers like this, it can be especially hard. But there's a bit of resurgence in interest and academic research on this composer that we'll get into later. Yes, and it's all very important work, and we're happy to talk about him as much as we can. So just starting with his early life, Lusitano was born in Olivenza, which is in Portugal, in roughly 1520. We don't have an exact date on that. But he is of mixed race. His mother is believed to be of African descent, and his father was believed to be a white Portuguese man. He became a Catholic priest in the Order of St. Peter, and he was a very successful teacher in Padua, Viterbo, and Rome. Yeah, we're jumping around a few places. Um, I guess let's unpack that a bit, little bit. So um, being of mixed race is not easy no, <laughs> at this definitely. time. No, um, right. And actually has historical implications that we'll get into as well. Um, but being a priest, that's very interesting. Uh, this is kind of like uh, a big thing that composers did back then of writing religious, sacred music, being involved with the church in one way or another, um, holding positions as composers at churches or in courts that are associated with the church. Um, you know, the whole royalty, nobility, aristocracy thing. Um, but as we'll see, there's a few um, obstacles in the way of Lusitano here um, as far as like achieving, you know, a prestigious position in both the church or as a court composer or anything similar. Absolutely. And as you say, Josh, as a composer at this time, getting a job with a church was probably one of the most sought after gigs you could get as a composer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe you if you compose for the Pope, I think you're set for life. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's a big jump from, you know, just um, working at any church, I guess. Um, but, you know, this is sort of an interesting connection, whereas today that sort of framework of composers making money in the church is like non-existent. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I see those donations come in to the churches. Maybe maybe something's happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is also super interesting, just that um, Lusitano has also taught. We're in three different cities already. Um, in Italy, not Portugal anymore. Yeah, so going from Portugal to Italy, and that's not where the the traveling stops. So I just think these are like little points to touch on that are kind of easy to to um, easy to sweep under the rug a bit, you know? Absolutely. And how about we talk about why he moved? So 
He initially moved to Rome with a Portuguese ambassador who was believed to be his patron at the time. Um, but he really wanted to work in a church position, as we've established. That's kind of the main gig you want to have as a composer, as a musician at this time. But unfortunately, he couldn't land himself a job. And it was because at this time, um, black people were not permitted to work in the church as the composers. Specifically, being of um, mixed race um, is a really big sort of um, sticking point here in Portugal. They had a, a whole term for it and categories for different, you know, mixed race peoples. And this isn't something just particular for this time, but also for in the future, um, you know, during colonialism, slave trade, all of that stuff. Having uh, mixed race, mixed blood is something that people get oppressed for often in history. Yeah, absolutely. And even now as a composer from Portugal, now Italy, this is something that Lusitano faced. And despite facing these, he still made a name for himself in Rome as a composer and as a music theorist. Um, he was very well known for this debate he got into with Nicola Vicentino, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yes, this is composer drama. Yes, composer drama career-changing drama. Yeah, before we get there, I actually wanted to touch on um, sort of like the historical context too here of like um, composers being theorists, being um, people who are priests or who are working for the church or working for nobility. It's really interesting if you consider this from like um, the source of knowledge perspective where during this time being knowledgeable you weren't in the university sphere of academia like today. You were in the church mm -hmm. or in the courts. Um, it seems that, you know, the transfer of knowledge was really limited to um, these spaces. So I think that's something that's interesting if, if we think about, okay, well, why are composers in the church being priests, uh, X, Y, and Z, working for this nobility, this duke, this king, stuff like that? And these are kind of nexuses for creativeness, music creation, and a lot of things at the time. Um, <laughs> I kind of think of it like we were just watching House of Dragon or, you know, Game of Thrones or something. All the smart people, it seems like, are, you know, um, <laughs> working for the nobility, I guess. Also the very selfish people. Yeah, what are they called? The, the maesters? Um, I think in some series, yeah, it's like the King's Council, I think, in Game of Thrones specifically. No, 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 the healers and stuff, the maesters. In Game of Thrones? or Yeah, yeah, like they heal you, they take care of you, they read books. Oh, I think so, <laughs> Giant yeah. Giant books. Yeah, Jon Snow's <laughs> friend wanted to be that, I forget his name. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> this is a Game of Thrones podcast Samuel now, y'all. Samwell Tarly? Samwell Tarly, I loved him. Yeah, yeah, watch House of Dragon. Um, or don't. We've only seen the first episode. We can't endorse that. Yeah, but <laughs> you you can get to that with the context of this <laughs> this composer. Yeah, we're sure there's tons of podcasts that talk about House of Dragons, but yeah. we talk about it in the context of late Renaissance, early Baroque composers. Yeah, I just think it's interesting if you look at, you know, um, kind of the barriers of, of entry to getting this knowledge and stuff. Um, it, it we said it in a joke but you know it is also a sign of like kind of the the oppression happening mm -hmm. um 
and this is not isolated to just this era either where you know um the source of knowledge and creativity is restricted to certain types of uh spaces yeah and it's also not just restrictive to italy or even europe i feel like yeah so you get this interesting sort of dichotomy now of um lusitano being of mixed heritage being someone who's a minority and getting oppressed for it but also being in these spaces where you know composers tend to flourish and um we can get into where that gets him um so it was very tough for him to find work uh to put it succinctly yeah absolutely i mean after trying his best in rome he eventually moved to germany and why did he move to germany because he really wanted a position at the court of the Duke of Württemberg, which is in Stuttgart, Germany. And he unfortunately never ended up getting a solid, stable job in that court, but he did manage to send compositions and get paid for each piece that he sent over to them. Um, when he moved to Germany also, just an FYI, he converted to Protestantism because that was the religion at the time. Um, and he ended up getting married, but unfortunately still did not get the gig. Yeah, and this is a big deal. I mean, if you look up the great big composer names like Beethoven and Monteverdi and stuff, these people really wanted certain positions. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to be the Kapellmeister at this place or, you know, be in this specific court or write for the Pope. And um, having these positions in general, even lesser positions than those, offered a lot of comfort and security for creating music. So we're essentially seeing Lusitano be a freelance composer. Um, and I would imagine that a lot of the issue comes with the fact that um, he's forbidden, at least in Portugal, from holding any sort of beneficiary position in the church. So he could be a priest, but he can't like make money in the church and stuff. Yeah, he can't write music and get paid for writing music for any church or service or anything like that. And then I bet when he goes elsewhere, you know, to Germany and stuff, he's facing discrimination as well. Yeah, I mean, we are seeing him face it in Germany and in Italy as well. So this is definitely not just a Portugal problem or an Italy problem. It's a it's a Europe problem, y'all. Yeah, but <laughs> let's get into the drama that shows a little bit of you know, his musical ideology, how active he was and um, how people back then had debates. You know, they didn't have Twitter and stuff. They were mm -hmm. instead, <laughs> I don't know, going to the uh, the auditorium, the public forum. They were bringing their <laughs> arguments all nicely written out for them to reference. Yeah. So how about you tell us about that, Han? Yeah. So in 1551, while Lusitano was in Rome, he ended up in a debate with the Nicola Vincentino. And Vincentino was a very, very well-respected Italian music theory theorist. Excuse me. He was considered one of the most progressive music theorists at this time. And fun fact, he apparently invented the microtonal keyboard. So that's a fun bit of trivia for y'all. Um, but yeah, this in this debate, um, Lusitano was supporting traditional views on the role of the three genera in music, which were outlined as diatonic, chromatic, and enharmonic, while Vincentino was favoring the more radical ones that he put forward. 
For those who would like more spicy deets on the debate than that, Lusitana was claiming that music from this certain piece that they were discussing was purely diatonic, while Vincentino stated that all contemporary music, so this piece included that they were discussing, was a blend of chromatic and enharmonic um, genes with the diatonic one. And this debate ended up being spiraled to a whole nother level when one of the judges um, claimed that Lusitano was falsifying his written report and the debate turned into one about whether the composers even knew which genus the work was composed, composed for in the first place. Um, but in the end, this claim by the judge was very, very damaging for Lusitano because even though he was deemed the winner of the debate and Vincentino was fined, uh, Lusitano was not deemed as a credible resource because of these claims about his falsified report. And this ended up leading to him being excluded in a lot of lists and resources when talking about early European composers. So this is where things get interesting. And just to highlight how wild this is, basically, they had an argument about music. And then <laughs> Vincentino basically said, hey, I don't know what, what Lusitano is telling you. I won this. Lusitano said, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we should <laughs> mention that Vincentino is a very popular guy at this point. Yeah, so he's so, got clout. Yeah, he used his pool, his clout, his credibility to discredit Lusitano, who at the moment seemed to have won the debate. Now, this is literally like an argument hundreds of years ago. None of us were there. I guess we have no idea how exactly it went down. But, you know, this is something you could see playing out today of, oh, I, I think I won the argument, so I'm going to tell people this. And I think I won the argument, so I'm going to tell people this. Um, the difference here is there's a bit of a, a power imbalance. And, of course, um, Lusitano is not um, favored in this instance because of his mixed race. This is where things kind of have a more academic implication, though, because Vincentino um, sort of pushing out Lusitano's credibility, uh, discrediting him, kind of erased him in a way from the sort of historical perspective. Yeah. And this is where we get into issues of biography, where Lusitano is not seen as an important composer, not seen as a credible source of information. Maybe this has played into him being lost to time. But even more so, it's very interesting that um, even up until 1977, Lusitano is not commonly described as being a composer of color, being a black composer, or being of mixed race or anything like that. He's essentially um, viewed as a white composer or just not mentioned at all. And I thought this was particularly interesting because it's kind of a unique case of erasure where we don't acknowledge that composers of older eras are of color or can be of color where we assume, uh, oh, Renaissance composers, they're all white or yeah. they're all from these locations. And they're all men. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of easy to see when you look at like the very Eurocentric approach to discussing early music history mm -hmm. it's, it's not only just western music history but ignores any sort of diversity possible within those areas absolutely and 
it's always good when we can realize, hey, white men, white cisgender, able-bodied straight men are not the only people who are writing music at this time. Yeah, and in this case, we do kind of have like this academic tilt now where, well, if someone was oppressed and they were discredited and they're not even being acknowledged for their background, um, they're not just being sort of erased from the perspective of, oh, their music's not being performed, but they're not even coming up in the discussion anymore as like being a standout, I guess, because of their push against like, you know, the barriers they had in their lifetime. And I thought it was really kind of wild to read um, in some sources online that there's scholars today, academics today, who definitely um, don't take kindly to the idea of Lusitano being discussed as a composer of color. Oh, yeah. It's definitely something that is shocking. I mean, even as we mentioned in the beginning, we don't have a lot of verified sources on his life, on his works, on his on just him in general. And it's just a part of him being lost to time. Yeah, we did talk about Machado being like the the main person to chronicle Lusitano's life. And even Machado um, made this submission. And I think that is particularly what damaged the sort of um, documentation of Lusitano over time. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's wild that the nexus for or the catalyst for this um, is sort of rooted in this drama debate that him and Vincentino had. Yes. And don't let this be a lesson to not get into whatever the 21st century equivalent of this kind of beef debate is. Yeah. Delete your tweets. You know, <laughs> you might be wiped off of history. I don't know. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we did mention um, this whole theory aspect. Lusitano did make a uh, a text, a treatise, mm-hmm. um, and there's some really cool pictures of it online, actually. Like you can see the hand, five fingers that kind of are used as a teaching tool for note names. Mm-hmm. And you can even see some of the um, clefts and notation used and how it is taught of the... Um, you know, chromatic, diatonic, and harmonic, things like that. Yeah. And accidentals. Yeah, and this treatise that he published in, I believe it was 1555? Oh, no, I'm sorry, 1561. He published it, and it was considered a widely useful resource for teaching all sorts of musical aspects, like intervals, hexachords, intonation, um, notation, And then there were longer sections about counterpoint proportions and just general composition advice. And it's really interesting because at the time, this is one of the most thorough and detailed depictions of a document that is talking about counterpoint that's explaining music composition. It's one of the longest surviving documents of its kind, and yet it's one that is very often overlooked. Yep, we definitely hear about other texts from, you know, big name composers. We hear about what Palestrina did and all that. But um, this is definitely an instance where I'd, I'd never heard of this before, you know, researching the composer. And um, we haven't even gotten into music, which, by the way, the music's really interesting. It's not anything to miss out on. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess maybe we can start the discussion on that. Absolutely. The first piece we are going to talk about is called Human Domine, 
And this is one of his motets. And for those who may not know, a motet is essentially a sacred or a religious vocal work. Um, usually the text is in Latin at this time period, though there are some few exceptions. And this work is really interesting because if you listen to the harmonic material, it is very, very chromatic. And there's a lot of dissonance just vertically happening. And it's very fascinating to listen to. And I'm not a vocalist, but I imagine it's also very difficult to pull off. Yeah, actually, there's a few things that make it, I guess, both interesting and difficult. Um, it's chromatic, which is pretty interesting in the sense that um, a lot of pieces around this time are diatonic, but not necessarily tonal. They're not like doing functional tonality as you might look at on a Roman numeral analysis, but they do build off of church modes and also, you know, just um, standard scales. Um, but the whole sort of major minor functional tonality thing is not quite cemented at this time. It's in a bit of an in-between area. But this happens to be very chromatic and have these sort of like interesting creeping dissonances. And I say creeping because um, you'll notice in this one that there's almost like a, a wedge happening. The vocal melody on top, on the top voice is like continuously rising up in half steps. Um, almost most movements in, in this are a half step. Mm -hmm. And you have like contrary motion in the lower voices. So you get this kind of like rising and lowering thing happening and very unusual to have like half step movements creating the dissonance during this time. So when I first heard it, it just jumped out to me. I was like, oh, this sounds like um, not quite what I expected <laughs> when yeah. I go to listen to Renaissance music. In fact, it sounds pretty, um, pretty like contemporary almost. Yeah, it definitely was jarring to hear it um, for the first time. I totally expected like when listening to any early Baroque, late Renaissance music, I was like, OK, it's going to be harmonically pretty straightforward. This will be, oh, boy, it was not. <laughs> Yeah, it almost reminded me of like Schoenberg or something like kind of like, it, I mean, it's dissonant, but that's not really what I'm getting at. It's more like there's an expressivity to it, like expressionism. Um, and it's also kind of like um, this intricately woven voice leading that's happening, but in a dissonant way. Um, so you kind of get something almost like there's a system at play that's unfolding in the music kind of more technical discussion than we do in here but i thought it was worth pointing out of like why this piece stands out and why it's so interesting um one thing i always think of is uh this is vocal works this is a vocal work um imagine what these composers would do with you know like more timbral variety um mm -hmm. now this could be an instrumental ensemble i think i did even hear an instrumental rendition of this Oh, wow. That's got to be really fascinating to listen to. Yeah. I mean, um, if the harmony and such is already so cool, I wonder, you know, what other possibilities are in there? This might be something that people can explore of picking up these early music um, pieces, these Renaissance pieces and earlier and playing them as arrangements on different instruments. Oh, absolutely. And for any big music theory nerds um, who just for some reason, love doing Roman numeral analysis on anything. Good luck doing one on this. <laughs>
well, you can't on this one because it's it's just not functional, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just there for the vibes. It's really good, y'all. Definitely give this a listen. I think the assumption is that Renaissance music will sound old and archaic. This almost reminded me of like when I first listened to ancient Greek music or something. It's like this sounds like <laughs> nothing else, I guess. And mm-hmm. in this case, um, this sounds nothing like his peers at the time, in my opinion. Definitely not. And what I think is also wild is Lucy Tano was considered on the more traditional um, route compared to his contemporaries, which makes me wonder um, just how fascinating this music is. Yeah, I mean, this is one to listen to, and it's only one of a few that we're going to talk about. Let's get into the next one. Yes. And that would be Inviolata, which is a really interesting piece because it's part of a larger collections of works that um, actually draw from Jusquan Dupre. Uh, which is a more familiar name to many of you probably. Um, But this is also really cool because this is probably the first publication of a a collection of works for a composer of mixed descent. Yeah, this happened in 1551. Yeah, and I actually want to um, give a shout out to, I believe it's pronounced the Marian Consort, uh, which is a group that has performed this work. There's a really wonderful video available on YouTube that we'll link to. Um, and they're actually part of a, a, a revival effort of this music that we'll talk about shortly. And they also have a link to pre-order the recordings for his music. So you can go ahead and check that out too. Yeah, so some active recordings being done. Um, I mean, this was in 2021, so that link for pre-order Unless it's delayed like a a Bethesda game or something. Oh, my goodness It's probably gracious. out by now. Let um, me see. It looks like you can play it on Spotify and Apple Music. Yep. There you go. So this one is really interesting. Um, it's based on one of Jesquan's uh, motets. And this is expanding the voice count from five to eight. So you actually have like this really rich canon that's happening. And it sounds very different than the last work that we talked about. Yeah, and from his collection, which, by the way, is called Liber Primus et Prigmatum, this is actually one of the largest, most substantial pieces from that collection. So this work on its own is really quite fascinating, in addition to the other ones of the collection. But um, Involata is definitely kind of like the little crown jewel in there. Yeah, and I mean, this is a nice one to look at and listen to. The video is really wonderful that's online. In comparison to the last one, this one is definitely more, um, <laughs> you know, hymn-like, uh, open mm-hmm. open harmonies, really smooth. Um, I, I guess, you know, what's not to like about it? Yeah. Uh, and if you like that sort of homogenized vocal sound, you know? If you don't and you don't like it, that's totally cool too, though. Yeah, um, but there's an English translation of the text included in the video that we'll link to, so you can follow along and really sort of experience the music. Um, I think it's really cool seeing a publication like this survive. You know, they didn't have Sibelius and such back then. No. And they didn't have the internet to, you know, sort of just upload all their stuff. So the fact that this survived from a composer who 
you know, is from a minority group is a really big deal. I mean, we talked about Julius Eastman way back and there's composers, you know, as recent as Julius Eastman, who it's so hard to still get hands on some of their works. Um, So the fact that some music is, you know, surviving hundreds and hundreds of years is really rare. And on that topic, there's actually, you know, a bit of a revival of the music happening. There is a period of time where Lusitano's not being discussed at all. And then more recently, I mean, in 1977, there is a bit of like an academic resurgence as far as like, hey, by the way, this person exists and they're of this background. But even more recently, there is some sort of uh, resurgence in as as far as recording and performing the works. And the Marian Consort is a prime example here. Yeah, and another important thing to note is that this composer was not actually seen much as a composer. He was more credited as a theorist, and he's very much a theorist as much as he is a composer, but people just did not perform or discuss his musical works as opposed to his theoretical ones as much. Yeah, great point. I mean, it's very rare for someone to sort of be lost to time in this way. This is probably the first example of someone who... I mean, people are mistaking his background. Someone has done a smear campaign against him, I guess. And then at the end of it, there's more credit for the theory contribution than the composition. Now, to be fair, a lot of composers during this time seem to be contributing to theory output. Music theory back then is very different than it is now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more, I guess, emphasis on the the practice, what what sort of practice you came from. Um, and like, for example, Monteverdi being the second practice and, you know, people like Palestrina being prima practica and stuff. So um, it seems like composers back then were a bit more preoccupied with, you know, the rules. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> back then the rules were kind of literally the rules of how you wrote music. You wrote music by the rules. Whereas nowadays we have much more diverse music that can sound like anything and everything. And those are all perfectly wonderful, valid, and appreciated as well. Yeah, and, and music theory nowadays is more of an analytical, descriptive element, not prescribing you to compose a certain way. But I guess it does come down to sort of like the transfer of knowledge that we talked about uh, earlier in this podcast of like, you know, if all the information is coming from one source, they're going to like try to codify it a certain way and, you know, um, enshrine it in, to an extent. Not saying that uh, Lusitano ne- necessarily uh, did that, but, you know, it is interesting to observe like, hey, this theory text survived all this time. Yes. And despite it surviving all this time and being such an important tool from its time, it's just one that is not discussed about. It's not one that we really hear about. Yes, agreed. And be sure to check out kind of the images from it and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not a picture book, but, you know, the, the uh, diagrams and such are really interesting, seeing how people conceived of and taught music in the time. But otherwise, there were some other really cool pieces that um, I think you should check out. Like um, there's Canzanetta, uh, there's uh, La Pastorella Mia, um, Cidesia di Serpe. <laughs> I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but these are actually really cool pieces that caught my ear. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're a bit hard to dig up, but a lot of them uh, feature some more instrumental things like instrument and voice and really cool um, sort of combinations that really show the character of the music at the time. Absolutely. And something that um, we notice a lot of groups who perform early music will do is they'll change up the instrumentation a little bit. Maybe they'll stick to the original instrumentation or maybe they'll substitute some of the instruments for kind of similar um more modern instruments that we have today and make arrangements for those but the regardless they all have the spirit of the original in them and it's just so wonderful to hear and experience yeah in particular if you can find these um it it might be a little tricky by the way because some of these titles are shared between many different pieces Mm -hmm. but um really worth the listen Absolutely. Before we wrap up, there's actually a playlist that we'll share to you that has like six or seven Lusitano pieces from a channel that's just been, you know, supporting the music, uploading it. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. Han can tell you a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So this channel is on YouTube. They are called Cantum Mansurable. And in addition to recordings of music by Vicente Lusitano, and they have quite a few pieces on there. Um, They also have works by other early composers at the time. Um, Just at a glance, they have some of them organized by the style. They have Portuguese polyphony, Italian polyphony. But then they also have keyboard music, secular music, motets. And then they also have some areas that are organized by actual composers. So they have Giovanni Gabrelli, Palestrina, all these other composers that were important at the time, including Vicente Lusitano. And something really cool to see is they actually have multiple uploads of the same work, but there'll be different arrangements. For example, um, one of the pieces, Alor Chignunda, is actually a magical that was printed in 1562. So after um, Lusitano's assumed death, there's not only the original version that is for three voices and instrument, but there's a purely instrumental version as well. Nice. Some variety there. Oh, yeah. So if you really don't want to listen to voice, uh, you can go ahead and just (laughs) listen to some instruments just playing and vibing out. Or play them on top of one another. Ooh, that's (laughs) a good idea. But either way, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, We just wanted to remind you of some of the camp activities before we wrap things up. So, of course, the big one, Campground 23 is happening in March. Um, Just a reminder, that's March 16th to 18th, and it's in Tampa again. So go to the website, check that out. Um, And there's other podcasts going on and plenty of performance highlights and uh, other guest talks that have been coming up on the YouTube channel. So please check that out. Um, One of the more recent things was Project Goot on October 7th. Um, there might be some content out there that you can check out, but you can also catch the highlights on Campground 22. Is it? Yeah, 22. Wow. Yeah, 22. We're almost out. <laughs> and then 23, one year from now. <laughs> yeah, and 2023 20, is around the corner. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we just got to get through all of our late fall, wintertime holidays, and then it'll be spring. It'll be lovely. It'll be in Tampa, Florida. It's going to be a good time. Yep. And we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please like, subscribe, and comment. Let us know who we should be checking out, who we should be listening to. Um, it's definitely very important for us to, you know, get your feedback and hear uh, what gems you've discovered. <laughs>
Absolutely. And we're always happy, as Joshua said, to learn about more composers, not just more recent examples of composers lost the time, but we'll be very happy to listen to composers, instrumentalists, theorists, anyone in the world of art and music from any time who is lost to time. Yeah, there's some expansion we can still do here. Absolutely. And we love learning. Yep. And we hope you learned today. With that said, we'll see you next time. Have a good one, y'all. <laughs>